if the United States, its close friend, is worried about India's illiberal turn in Kashmir with CAA, with its plans for an NPR, a national population registrar, or national uh, registry of citizens, you know, it should tell you what uh, countries that are on the fence about India are thinking as well. So I think India would be wise to heed that, but that's obviously going to be something that, that they come through. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. Typically, we talk about what's going on in Pakistan, looking at economic issues and opportunities in the country. But as we're nearing the end of the year, we figured that we touch upon what's going on in the broader region, which is a subcontinent. So over the next couple of episodes, starting with today, we're going to be talking about India and then Bangladesh. And to talk about India and what's happened, which has been a pretty eventful year in India, um, is Aman Thakkar. He is an adjunct fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies um, and author of the newsletter, Indialogue, which is a must read, I would say, for anyone who's interested in learning more about what's going on in India, both politically, economically, and in terms of foreign policy. So Aman, uh, welcome to Pakistanomy. Thank you, Zara. It's uh, great to be here after being a longtime listener. Just as uh, you said, it's a must uh, listen to for anyone who's interested in Pakistan. So. It's great to be on the on the on the show. Thanks, and thanks for taking out the time. I want to jump in with what's been quite an eventful year in India. I mean, if you look back at the end of 2019 and even in the early parts of 2019, the economy was slowly slowing down, um, and then the pandemic hit, and there was a pretty strict lockdown, one of the toughest lockdowns anywhere in the world, uh, definitely in the region. Um, and so how do you see the impact of the coronavirus pandemic and uh, overall the stimulus packages that were announced on the Indian economy? Sure. I mean, this has been, you know, uh, like you said, a long time coming for India's economic woes. Um, the slowdown, you know, coming, you know, as really you can trace it back to demonetization in 2016, the first big policy shock that, you know, hit India. Um from then on, it's just been uh, limping ahead, nowhere near you know the eight, nine, ten percent that people were expecting or talking about when you look back to you know Narendra Modi's first campaign, Achedin, minimum governance, maximum governance. We were really sort of the expectation was, I think, for voters and for analysts that that would be the growth rate. But since 2016, it's been kind of limping along, uh, and that's why I think in 2019 you saw the the economy not really be a factor in the election. Uh, you had, you know, campaigns kind of more focused on nationalism, on Hindutva, on majoritarianism, and that's also been the policy focus. And so this has just been, uh, I think, uh, uh, almost a year of, of near neglect of the economy, uh, very, very slow pace of reforms. Um, in fact, one of my projects that I used to work on at CSIS is the India Reforms Tracker. And, you know, when you compare it to the first two years of Narendra Modi's uh, term in the first term in the first uh, government, there were six reforms done in the first two years, uh, or uh, six reforms done in the first two years, nine overall. And what you actually have now in the first year is just one reform complete. So it's just been a lack of focus on the economy. And then, as you said, the COVID-19 pandemic has just thrown a bigger wrench into uh, India's woes here, where the lockdown has led to complete shutdown of economic activity, um, the mismanagement of the lockdown, especially with the issue of migrant workers who are left out, uh, unable to return home, unable to find stay in, in the states that they work in, um, has led to you know a, a long-term structural issue because now that they finally returned home, there's a lack of labor in the you know industrial and heavy manufacturing states like Karnataka, like Mumbai, like Gujarat. Um, a lot of those laborers have returned to their uh, homes in the Hindi heartland. And you've just seen uh, India's uh, ability to respond to the uh, crisis minimized because of its poor fiscal situation. Uh, the GST collections have underperformed what the expectations were. This was the new goods and services tax, a nationwide uh, value-added tax that India introduced, much lower than what India was actually able to collect in its old system, which was a patchwork of state-led VATs. And um, you know, that's led to the government having a lot less ammunition to work with when it comes to fiscal response, fiscal stimulus. And so when they finally did announce their big round of stimulus, they said it was 10% of the economy, 10% uh, of GDP. That's what they're going to spend. The breakdown closer to it actually resembled more like around 1.2, 1.5%. 
because the majority of this was liquidity measures. A lot of it was, uh, you know, uh, not something that actually come out, comes out of the fiscal stimulus or was not actually uh, out of India's budget. And that's, I think, going to affect India's recovery path. Now, obviously, you've had one quarter where things really swung back and people are saying that that's a sign of, you know, um, uh, of hope. But I really think that when you look at the structural uh, issues, the lack of reform, um, the lack of attention paid to the economy over the last year and the COVID-19 issue and the fact that this is going to stick around for a long time, much longer than what we thought it was going to be, which is, you know, maybe by the end of this year, you know, it looks like cases are spiking again in Delhi and, and continuing to rise in India. Um, we're not out of the woods yet. And I think uh, our economy, our economic situation in India is, is, is going to be uh, one of those stories that we continue to pay attention to because uh, things are going to get uh, pretty, uh, pretty dicey here. So, I mean, you touched upon a couple of interesting things that I want to dive a bit deeper into. The first is reforms, um, obviously not as big of a push as we one would have expected. Um, I'm guessing that one piece of reform you're referring to is the agricultural sector, where the farmers have been on the streets in Punjab, and that also has been sort of railroaded through parliament in a way, but it is a step in the right direction. Um, but the question I have, and I think a lot of our listeners will have here is that, Prime Minister Modi and the BJP are, are a dominant force in Indian politics. And when you have that much force, you one would argue and assume that you have the political capital to spend in the way of reform. So from your perspective, what is the reason that something so um, important to India's future economic trajectory, not just economic, but geopolitical trajectory, um, has been ignored uh, by a government that is a dominant force in Indian politics? I think there's a, a mix of factors here um, that that actually, you know, have uh, have some, you know, uh, explanatory sort of factors and and why this is. I think the first is that Prime Minister Modi has been traditionally, you know, one of those uh, prime ministerial candidates and prime ministers that has talked a lot about schemes and and programs that are actually launched but aren't actually implemented to their full extent. So you look at schemes like Make in India, Startup India, Digital India, great things to announce, announced with big fanfare, a lot of attention paid to them. But really what has happened is uh, you've, you've seen the fruits of that not come to bear. So just to give you a statistic, I mean, despite the launch of Make in India, which is supposed to you know, create this $5 trillion economy that we've been talking about, India lost 3.5 million manufacturing jobs between 2012 and 2018. Uh, so, you know, two years of the UP government, but, you know, a significant portion of the Modi government as well. Uh, India was actually shedding industrial manufacturing jobs. And so what you have is schemes being launched and announced that actually aren't making an impact on the ground. I think that's one. I think the second uh, factor is also uh, political compulsions. Like you said, you know, the Prime Minister Modi and his uh, Bharatiya Janata Party are big factors uh, in India's political space now, the dominant party in politics uh, many would say, but uh, you also see that economic economics have not been a key issue sometimes uh, of how they've won the, their elections since 2014. Uh, especially, I think, since 2019, you've seen a big shift towards majoritarianism, Hindutva. Uh, you know, uh, you can just look at their actions in Kashmir on citizenship amendment. That's where the focus now is. And there's an internal calculation, I think, within the BJP that that's where they think the votes are. That's where they think political victories lie. And that is coming at the cost, as you said, not just of India's economic and geopolitical aspirations, but you know, as now as you know, we've been talking about India's a liberal turn, the effect that that will have on its relationships, its ability to play a role in the free and open Indo-Pacific, if it's not free and open in Kashmir, if it's not free and open for Muslim refugees who want to come to India, it's it's you know certainly something that's been a factor, and you know that's that's I think uh, another factor that that you can that you can see. And I think the third is that you know there we 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 forget that a lot of times the BJP, while it is dominated by Prime Minister Modi and Amit Shah, has a very deep division when it comes to economics within the BJP. You have your, you know, pro-industrialist, pro-reforms, uh, you know, people hailing from uh, you know the capital, financial capital, Mumbai, and things like that, where they're actually comfortable talking to industrialists. They want India to be you know a member of the Davos crowd. They want India to have reforms. But you've really got a very strong vocal element of the BJP and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, uh, the familial head of it, the, the RSS and the Sangh Parivar, 
uh, really protectionist, really insular, really does not want to see reforms being taken, wants to go back to sort of Swadeshi type uh, economics. And, and, and that's something that, you know, uh, whoever is the prime minister has to be able to manage those two factions. Uh, and I think that plays another role is that when you are in elections in Bihar, when you are in elections in Uttar Pradesh, you, you, you do tend to change your messaging. And I think that's another factor is that internal cleavage that people don't really talk about. We see the BJP as a monolith that may be a center-right party, but it's got some really protectionist anti-reform elements to it um, that, that can really swing the party around when it comes to economic reform. So I think those three factors really have a lot to do with why you don't see the BJP moving forward on reforms. We've seen these programs, right, Make in India, Startup India, and yes, the impact or the follow-up on that has been mediocre at best, um, if, if one is, is being gracious about it. But I wanted to get your take on why that's the case. Is this the chronic issue with sort of the subcontinental bureaucratic structure, the post-colonial state, where no matter who is at the top, like getting things done through the bureaucracy is a pain? Uh, even in the best of times. And then the follow-up to that is there's a new initiative that the Prime Minister has talked about in this COVID environment, which is Atmanirbhar Bharat, the self-reliant India. And do you see that, the follow-through coming for that, number one, but number two, related to your second and third points, um, is that at risk of being hijacked by these Swadeshi uh, elements within the BJP, which may actually go against what the Prime Minister has been talking about, where self-reliant India is more about making things for the world and using India's own uh, innovation manufacturing base for that versus a Swadeshi ideal or a Swadeshi interpretation of, um, uh, of, of Atmanirbhar Bharat is very different than that. So how do you see all of this playing out given that this is yet another scheme that, or not a scheme, another push that is being made by the prime minister uh, given the impact of COVID? No, absolutely. And I think, let me take the second part of your question first, which is on Atmanirbhar Bharat, and then we can, you know, um, move to the first part of your question. But I mean, it's really interesting on Atmanirbhar Bharat to see, uh, like you said, the rhetoric shift between um, the Minister of Commerce, Piyush Goyal, and then the Minister for External Affairs, uh, S.J. Shankar, really talk about, like you said, make for the world, we're going to be integrated, we're going to be a part of global value supply chains. So the rhetoric is there. But I think, you know, as any policy analyst uh, looks, you actually look at what the government is doing. And on that front, it's very clear, I think, to me that the trend lines are that Atmanirbhar Bharat is going to be a much more self-reliant, insular, and protectionist uh, step forward. And let me just outline a couple of ways that you see that. Starting with the budget that was introduced in 2018, uh, India started uh, reversing its uh, traditional uh, economic uh, policies towards tariffs, increasing tariffs across product lines for the first time, starting with the 2018 budget. So in that budget, you had um, the then finance minister Arun Jaitley talk about in his budget speech that, oh, you know, I am, ch I am changing the course. We're doing something that we haven't done for nearly 20 years since 1991. We are going to be increasing tariffs and doing it across 50 product lines. That was followed up in September 2018 with another 20 product lines. Since then, you've just seen protectionist step after protectionist step happen, be it price controls, uh, be it the inability to seal a, a phase one trade deal with the United States, be it the withdrawal from the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. And now, you know, increasing steps with Akhman Rabarat, you know, uh, uh, who can, uh, limitations on which countries and, um, you know, where sources can be come from, uh, where goods can be sourced from when it comes to government procurement. Uh, E-commerce, uh, foreign entities aren't able to compete effectively. There's a lot of uh, hurdles and roadblocks uh, to foreign e-commerce companies that want to enter the Indian market. They, you know, they have data localization issues. They have uh, the ability that they can't work with, uh, you know, uh, end rounds like they had where they used to buy out um, Indian companies and subsidiaries and host their products on their marketplace. That was deemed, you know, improper and, and not something that companies were allowed to do. So India is throwing up a lot of these roadblocks along the way continuing to be anti-trade, continuing to be protectionist. And I think if you put all of that together and then you put it against the rhetoric that says, oh, we're gonna be a part of global value supply chains or we're gonna be making it India for the world, there is that mismatch. You're telling something to the world that you're not really doing in your policies. Uh, and until you rectify that balance, it's going to be very hard, I think, for people to take that rhetoric seriously. As much as you know, I want to believe that uh, you know, Mr. Jay Shankar and Minister Goyal are saying the right things and you know are, are speaking to a, an audience that may want to invest in India. Um, these people are, are going to look at what's actually happening on the ground and recognize that 
boy, are there a lot of hurdles for me to do business in India. And, uh, and that I think becomes a big part of, um, you know, where Atmanirbhar Bharat is gonna go in the future. But to coming to your first point of your question, you know, I mean, uh, it, it is one of those things I think in, uh, I think it's true of India, I think it's true of the subcontinent that crises really can mobilize action in ways that, uh, you know, is not just limited to economics. I think when we move to uh, foreign policy, we can also talk about how crisis, you know, makes us spring into action. And so what you've really seen is that, you know, we all talk about 1991, we all talk about uh, the incredible steps that, you know, India took to open its economy up in, uh, in the face of crisis at that point. Um, but the reality is that India shouldn't be waiting for its next crisis before it starts to take the next steps forward. Um, there is a lot of bureaucratic inertia. There is a lot of uh, political compulsions that prevent you from doing reforms. Uh, but that's the difference between leadership and statesmen. You know, if you want to be a statesman, you want to um, define uh, India for the next century and, and unleash its, you know, sustainable jobs, growth. Um, economic well-being for the demographic dividend, as we call it, you have to take those hard steps, which is reforming India's economy and, and taking those painful but necessary steps. Uh, and what we've seen is that until sometimes there's a crisis, uh, politicians are very easy, uh, very, very sort of interested in just uh, pandering to voters, talking about, you know, uh, goodies that they can give them, talking about socialism, talking about handouts, um, and not really taking those painful steps, even though those will actually be much better for India's, you know, 1 billion people in the long run. Yeah, I think the, the part about crisis is super important, right? Because we've talked about this, I think, whenever a few months ago or years ago, when we were working together, that India has had this non-performing asset issue. Uh, yes. loan issue and that has not been cleared and now you have a crisis where you need to stimulate the economy it would have been great to have reformed the banking system before a crisis hit to make sure that you can stimulate the economy effectively which brings me to the point around the stimulus and and wanted to hear your thoughts on the fact that we've had the finance minister make three large announcements over the last few months in terms of stimulating the economy um the first sort of couple of rounds were i personally thought were made with an eye on the credit rating agencies and signaling that we're going to be prudent and not spend too much. Um, it actually did not have the intended consequence because the rating agencies came out and said, your stimulus does not go far enough, therefore we're downgrading you. And then the knock-on effect has been on GST and other economic indicators. Do you think they missed the boat in terms of looking at the crisis as something unique and and developing a new blueprint and playbook versus looking at the traditional economic response is saying the government should be constrained in its response. Let's be prudent fiscally. Um, let's not borrow too much. And to me as an outsider, I was like, India has the capacity to borrow both internationally and domestically to really go all in and stimulate the economy. And I think they did not do that. Um, and now we've had a quarter of growth where the economy has contracted by over 20%. How did you assess this, this fiscal stimulus three-step cycle that has come out in India? I think, I think very similar to you. Um, I wrote in my newsletter, I think, um, when the second round of stimulus came out, um, the principal financial or principal economic advisor to the government, Sanjeev Sanya, was doing a lot of media and a lot of press and said that, oh, we want to save our bullets um for uh for you know we, we want to make sure that we have ammunition for when we actually need to rebuild when we need to have another round of stimulus we don't want to use up all of our ammunition now and and i made the cheeky joke i think in my newsletter that you know you can save your ammunition but if you're going to get shot it doesn't really matter if you have other ammunition left i mean you have to make sure that you take care of what you need to in that first you know round of ammunition and they didn't do that i think as you said uh there was a lot that they could have done that they didn't do because they were taking an overly cautious approach. Uh, as you said, I think there was a miscalculation there about you know, the audience that they were looking to. And I think there's another factor there, which is, you know, um, this, is a, this is a government that uh, is you know, very, very uh, diverse, again, in terms of its economic policymaking. You've got very, very strong uh, personalities that are uh, pushing the government in various different directions. You've had the chief economic advisor a case of Romanium, or you've got the principal econo uh, economic advisor going out and saying, you know, we're going to do structural reforms. You read every single economic survey and says the time for structural reforms is now. You should do it. We're calling for it. I think Arvind Subramaniam wrote many uh, economic reform, uh, economic surveys that, you know, tell you where 
the economists are thinking, and then you have the political class that just doesn't take the action on it. Um, and so I think, you know, um, there is going to be some impact on that front because when you don't take the necessary steps that you need to, and you haven't done it for a long time, as you said, um, if you had the GST rolled out in a systematic way, we can go back to GST and talk about how it's rushed forward. Uh, we made it, uh, there was an, in my opinion, I think there was an electoral calculation to get it uh, implemented by 2017 so that the painful effects of GST are gone by the time 2019 comes around when the general election happened. I think that was a very political calculation by Narendra Modi, but that has the impact of you've rushed a nationwide tax through at a time when you know you should be taking it very deliberately, uh, setting it up in such a way that it's going to be a long-lasting reform. And now, you know, two, three years later, you've got a discussion now about states saying, let's just walk away from the GST. We have the old system that works. Um, so you had, you know, this is where the lack of focus on economics, confusing economic priorities with political priorities has a big impact on, on India's ability to actually, you know, sust create sustainable growth. And I think you saw that in this crisis as well, where there was a missed opportunity to move India towards a path for sustainable uh, growth and sustainable uh, job creation. And, and you really didn't see that. And you saw instead a lot of uh, concern about, as you said, ratings agencies, about politics, about how it's going to actually be you know, uh, interpreted and how people are outside entities, inside entities are going to view this. Uh, there was a less focus on just let's get the job done, let's get India reformed, uh, let's take this crisis as an opportunity. That I think that boat got missed. And I think um, you know, there's gonna be a lot of uh, talk about how India is gonna look at this period uh, in the future once we're far away from this crisis, how India behaved and what decisions were made. I think there's gonna be a lot of commentary on, on, on what happened during this time. So the economy hasn't done terribly well. Um, even before coronavirus, youth unemployment was at decades high. Um, and, and there was a lot of issues and a lot of criticism about the way the economy was being managed. We've talked about this at length just now. One would argue that that ends up resulting in a price that the government or the ruling party has to pay in electoral politics. But that also has not happened in India. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on why that's the case. We just had the Bihar election where uh, the BJP won, um, despite all odds or pronouncements being made early on. Some have said that this was essentially the prime minister and his own charismatic leadership pulling the party through. Um, wanted to get your sense around what you think uh, are the reasons for why the BJP continues to dominate Indian politics, despite you know bread and butter issues not being managed really well. Um, and I think that's an important thing to talk about, especially given a lot of the audience for this podcast is in Pakistan, where you have a lack of nuance in terms of understanding what the BJP phenomenon is like within India. It's, di it's a diverse space. It has different perspectives on issues. So I was just curious to hear your thoughts around what makes the BJP such a force to be reckoned with uh, in the Indian political system. There's, again, a couple of uh, factors here that I think are seriously at play. I think one is um, the BJP's incredible organization. I think there's been a number of books that have come out about this um, that you know really detail the way in which the BJP has organized itself, um, be it all over social media and over WhatsApp with you know really sort of uh, engaged uh, volunteers and uh, member you know uh, people that are sympathetic to the party. Uh, you see it at you know at every sort of polling place and every sort of polling location. They have two, three, four volunteers that are in charge of that that work within the party. You've got a very structured uh, state level sort of Pradesh uh, committees and and you know uh, state level parties. Uh, you've got some incredible state leaders. I think that's again a nuanced space where you have state leaders in places where. Um, you know, in, in, they have done well. You have Madhya Pradesh, you have Shivraj Singh Chauhan, you have Devendra Fadnavis in Maharashtra, you have, um, you know, leaders come up in, in Karnataka, you have, uh, so you have a much stronger bench of state leaders, I think, when you compare it to the main other opposition party, which is the Congress. So I think there's that level of organization, which, uh, which the BJP has. I think the second thing is, and I think this is still a puzzle, I don't think anyone has an answer to it, but there is a Teflon-like uh, characteristic to Prime Minister Modi, where people do not hold him accountable for failures of bread and butter issues. He is still incredibly popular within India. Um, I think partly that is because if there is the there, there is no alternative 
uh, choice uh, or factor playing out where people think that he is the dominant leader and there really isn't another figure that they can point to that's going to be able to lead the country. Um, part of that is because of the Congress's inability to regain trust uh, from the Indian public and, and it's an inability to reform itself for the times. Um, you've seen repeated attempts to try and get a permanent uh, leadership within the Congress party. Uh, and you know, you've seen it sort of be Rahul Gandhi for uh, a, a few years, him resigning in 2019, a, a real opportunity to try and get some leadership and, and some reform within the party, be it democratic elections, be it uh, incentivizing state leaders, none of that has happened. And Sonia Gandhi was re brought back as uh, party president. Now it looks like they're shaping Rahul Gandhi to come back if you read a lot of the political journalists that are talking about this. Uh, so I'm losing inability track of, of how many comebacks Rahul Gandhi is going to have. Yes, exactly. Point. And, you know, uh, as much as, you know, Rahul Gandhi is an engaged political leader and has had some success in trying to drum up issues, um, you can't deny that there is, you know, a, a, a factor about the inability of Congress to, uh, you know, position him as an effective leader, as someone that can really take on. That's just not been something that they've done. You can talk about that as being either a strategic or a tactical issue with the Congress, or that's just who Rahul Gandhi is. There's a lot of explanations for why that is, but the Congress has not been able to put out a significant leadership position. Uh, and time and time again, you've had Congress leaders, senior Congress leaders talk about the fact that there's a need for reform. Uh, most seriously now with, you know, a, a list of, I think, 12 Congress MPs and uh, senior leaders who are 22, I, I forget the number, but they put out this letter to Sonia Gandhi asking for reform of the party and they've actually been shunned, uh, not, you know, brought in, but actually they found their voices scuttled uh, within the Congress Working Committee and the, the apex sort of organization of the Congress. That's a big factor, I think, when you know you don't have an organized opposition, uh, you let one narrative flourish, and and that's something that uh, I think has happened here. Uh, so you know, strong organization uh, of the BJP, a, a weak opposition, an inability to reform within it and, and reach for the times, that I think plays a plays a big factor in it. And yes, this Teflon ability of uh, Narendra Modi that we really, as political scientists, you know, uh, who, who are trying to research this question, have not yet been able to understand why he's got this ability to divorce himself from the mismanagement in the economy or the mismanagement of the lockdown. That hasn't been seen as reflective of the prime minister himself. Uh, and why that is and how that is, I think, is a question political scientists are going to be asking for a long time. Um, but I think all three of those factors play a big role and I think why the BJP continues continues to dominate, why you've seen Congress basically retreat to only the southern portion of India, uh, the BJP taking over not just the Hindi heartland where it used to dominate before, but you know central India, northeastern states, uh, that's where they've been able to make inroads as well. And, and um, really you don't see Congress trying uh, to, to take steps in order to revive its fortunes in those areas where it's lost ground. What do you think is going to happen in West Bengal? Because that, again, has been a long-term project of the BJP. Talk about organization skills and investing in, in building grassroots level capabilities. It's coming up soon. Bihar was a success. Uh, what do you think the prospects look like in West Bengal, where, which will be, I fear, at the very least, a very toxic and, and hopefully not, but could be a violent campaign period as well? Yeah, you, you took the words right out of my mouth. I, I was going to say, for sure, what we can say is that this is going to be an ugly election. You're going to see um, a lot of uh, very vitriolic, um, sort of horrific things being said uh, in the lead up to that campaign. Um, you, it's going to be a, a big push, I think, on Hindutva again there. And um, the fact that that's been something that they've deployed very effectively since 2019, um, as, as, as toxic as that messaging is, it, it somehow... I think has been effective. Um, and I think, you know, um, the bellwether effect of Bihar is going to be a big impact. Uh, the prime minister is going to feel rejuvenated and renewed in terms of his efforts uh, coming off a fresh victory in, in Bihar. Um, they're going to sort of feel that as a, as a confidence booster going into that election. Um, so I, you know, I, I think with, uh, with you bracing yourself for what's going to come, um, but it, you know, it really looks like it's going to be um, a, a battle and, 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 a, and a toxic one at that. Uh, I don't know about any sort of predictions that I can make other than, you know, India is just such a, uh, such a difficult place to navigate sometimes in terms of predicting who's going to win elections. As you said in Bar, 
everyone thought it was Tejasvi Yadav's to lose and lose he did. Um, maybe it's the BJP's to lose. Maybe it's going to be a, a drawn out battle. Maybe Mamta Banerjee has uh, another you know, ability within her to, to come back and, and duke it out. Um, we will just have to see, I think, but safe to say that um, we're, we're going to have to do a lot of um, soul searching if some of the ugly things that we expect are going to be said are actually said out loud in this campaign that's about to come up. So let's take a look outside India and what's happening. Um, we had long drawn out negotiations over RCEP. India was a part of it. And then at the last minute, India decided that this was not a, worth, a deal worth signing and walked away. Um, unsurprisingly, the other members of the partnership decided to move on and signed and, and are operationalizing the agreement. Um, how do you see that that decision to walk away? There is, of course, this moment where everyone talks about the fact that supply chains are moving out of China. Um, you know, India is trying to compete with the Vietnams of the world to get part of that supply chain in India. Um, and, and RCEP should have been arguably a, a, a means through which to get those supply chains in India, but that has not happened. And you touched upon the fact that there is this uh, Swadeshi ideal within the party that sort of is 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 cautious about integrating with the rest of the world. So given this moment, given the fact that and we can use that this opportunity to talk about US-India relations as well, but the fact that US and India are continuing their long embrace uh, and are expected to continue that moving forward, um, how does all of this play out in the fact that India is still not keen on resolving some of the trade issues that it has with the rest of the world, which ideally it should, it, it, given that it wants to play a bigger role in the international order. No, certainly it was something that, you know, uh, a big decision like that um, is going to be, I think, heavily scrutinized for years to come. But I mean, I think um, there's there's a lot uh, to unpack when it comes to RCEP. I think personally, as someone who was a, you know, a free trader and sees, you know, the importance and the benefits of free trade, you know, that that was a decision that um, you can see the negative impacts of, of what that means uh, very directly. But I think, you know, it's hard increasingly to separate um, trade deals at this time when there's this blowback or pushback to globalization with domestic considerations, as well as geopolitics. And I think both of those played a big factor here that need to be unpacked. Uh, domestic considerations, again, you know, the, there was a, a massive campaign by the Swadeshi Jagran Manch, you know, this uh, member of the Sangh Parivar, the labor movement of the RSS that, you know, it technically finds itself within the same family as the BJP, vehemently getting to the streets against RCEP. Uh, and, and, you know, you have at the same time, uh, trade ministers from the BJP government going to RCEP uh, negotiations uh, for multiple years, uh, you know, in the first Modi administration. So that's something that has to be reconciled. And there was that legitimate fear of, how Indian businesses are going to be pushed out of industries where they've actually been able to at least cater to their own Indian uh, clients, the, you know, what that means for these 12 countries and or 15 countries and their ability to engage and do business within India. Um, but I think secondly, and most importantly, the souring of relations with China, uh, India-China relations to really taking a nosedive uh, in, in 2020, I think has also been something that people have pointed to as a good reason for why India pulled out of RCEP in 2019. Uh, realistically, it's, you know, the talking point has been said, India already has a free trade agreement with ASEAN as, you know, uh, as watered down sometimes as that may be, as it's being reviewed right now, you can talk about, uh, again, protectionism there, the fact that they're reviewing their India-ASEAN free trade agreement. Uh, India also has free trade agreements with Japan and South Korea. So the only new additions are gonna be Australia, New Zealand, and China, and China big the being, uh, big, being the big factor here. It's hard to say that you know when relations are this rocky with China, when it's occupying what India believes it's its own territory, uh, that you would want to enter into a trade agreement. So uh, if all things had been the same, except India had not pulled out of RCEP in 2019, there's a very good chance it would have pulled out uh, because of what's happening this summer and, and fall uh, along the Himalayas and Eastern Ladakh. Um, but you know the, the bigger picture really is that um, in India, like you said, that wants to be part of global supply chains, that wants to compete with China in terms of building up a strong manufacturing base, is not going to be able to do that as effectively being out of the two biggest trading blocks in Asia, be that the CPTPP, the, you know, the comprehensive, the, the follow-up to the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, Comprehensive and Progressive Trade-Pacific Partnership, or the RCEP. Uh, India finds itself outside of both, and it's really hard to see how it can make 
those inroads into global supply chains, convince businesses that it's a it's a place that you know it can be integrated into global supply chains when it's not part of those two mega regional free trade agreements because it makes things uh, you know a, a lot smoother when you're within those within those entities. I think the second thing is that India won significant concessions during its negotiations in RCEP, 20 year sunset periods on select you know products and imports, uh, you know long sort of exceptions that India had. Um, that it was going to be, is India going to be able to win those concessions back in the future uh, if it decides that RCEP is in its future? The, the countries have said that the door is open to India, and Japan may even go to bat for India and say that you know we should uh, honor those exemptions. But it is something that uh, India has to has to take forward and and think about. And I think finally is the the open question that I have in my mind is that okay, you you, you don't want to be a part of RCEP. Uh, you really haven't. Uh, opened up your uh, trade barriers and lowered them. In fact, you're raising your trade barriers. You're reviewing your trade agreements. You're, uh, you know, increasing tariffs on uh, 50, 70 product lines in, in between 2018 and 2019. What then is your strategy for in economic engagement with the Indo-Pacific, as we call it? We have a very strong uh, defense and strategic component to it, be it, you know, with the Quad, the trilaterals with the United States and Japan, or with Australia, Indonesia, you've got these web of trilaterals and quadrilaterals. You've got, um, you know, Sagar, uh, uh, security and growth for all in the region, India's big doctrine for the Indo-Pacific. Um, you're engaging with the multilateral organizations there, be it IORA or, you know, other entities there. Um, but what is the economic component of that? If you're not going to be a part of RCEP, then there has to be something else. We got an insight into it, which is when the uh, external affairs minister, S.J. Shankar, said something about India has been battered by these trade agreements. We've actually been deindustrialized because of these trade agreements. If that's the answer that, you know, we're not going to be part of these trade agreements, and in fact, we're going to say that they're actually the cause for deindustrialization in India, that really tells you, I think, how misdiagnosed the problem is within India, that it's not about internal reforms and it's not about the way that we should be thinking about um, you know, taking the painful but necessary land reforms, cleaning up the credit, uh, you know, the credit sort of industry and, and cleaning up the NPAs, uh, allowing more credit into India, you're, you're misdiagnosing the problem. And that means that one of the big pillars that you need to have if you're looking at geopolitics and geoeconomics within Asia is that India is not playing the game of economics and economic integration within Asia. And that's a big, uh, that's a big issue. And, and I think that if India doesn't actually have an answer for how it's going to economically integrate, uh, with Asia, the rest of the countries, like you said, are moving forward with it, with or without India, and, and that means that you know it, the onus is on India to figure out how it's gonna uh, how it's gonna be uh, a, a, an economic player within India. And so far, I don't see any answers short of just poo pooing trade agreements. So, yeah, I think the foreign minister's comments were surprising to say the least. I was I fully agree with you that it it gave us an insight into the fact about how poorly if these remarks should be taken, they should be taken seriously, how poorly he has diagnosed um, the issue at heart, which is that the reason why India is deindustrializing or unable to compete with the rest of the world on some of these goods is not because, yes, some part of it is true that there are subsidies at play and some sort of dumping going on, particularly with China, but the large part of it is India's own failure to reform and, and manufacture and improve its manufacturing base. And if, if that is the mindset, then I think that's going to be a a big challenge for India again to uh, to at least match the rhetoric of self-reliant Indian Atmanirbhar Bharat, and I think a domestic insular focus is actually bad uh, for India and its own ambitions uh, when it comes to the international order. Let's talk about before we conclude the transition here in the United States. Um, of course, President-elect Biden has started to talk about his national security team. Um, there is quite a lot of evidence from past remarks of these individuals that US-India relations will continue to move forward. And in fact, even in the Trump era, they continue to move forward and actually were one of the few areas where there was stability and continuity from previous administrations. So how do you see getting into 2021 and beyond um, under a Biden administration? Um, how, where do US-India relations go from here? That's, you know, one of those areas where you actually uh, are happy about India's foreign relations and, you know, one of those things that um, you see as being a strength that India has, which is its ability to be a bipartisan uh, issue uh, that, you know, we will 
no matter which political parties in power, both within India now, I think it's a bipartisan issue. We have the Congress of the BJP and um, within the United States that relations with the United States, uh, strengthening those and moving those forward and creating progress on that is going to so be- So you're, you're, you're saying that the days of, you know, cash suitcases of cash in the nuclear deal <laughs> was being debated in parliament are past us? I, I, I think, I mean, you know, I think, uh, in as much as that's a, that's a, a story, I think it's also that Manmohan Singh, you know, gambled his government on uh, deepening ties with the United States. I mean, we forget how, like you said, how razor thin that uh, that majority was. But the fact that he gambled his government and said, you know, I, I think this is something that I'm willing to stand up to a load of no confidence and, and push it forward. And then the stunning reversal of the BJP, which vehemently, you know, uh, argued against uh, deepening ties with the United States in 2018 and has now gone forth and signed all of these enabling agreements, you know, the logistics agreement, the communications agreement, CAPCASA, uh, the, the, geo, the geospatial intelligence agreement. Uh, I think, I, I think we're, we're, we're far away from, from those days now. And uh, I, I think if you read both the uh, BJP's manifesto, but also the, the special national security manifesto that the Congress put out with uh, Lieutenant General Diaz Huda that put out, I mean, I think that there's a bipartisan consensus within India as well. Um, but I think when you when you click deeper, I mean, there are still areas that you need to focus on. I mean, uh, the only other country, like going back to our our, our trade discussion uh, and RCEP, the only other country that finds itself outside of the two mega regional agreements in Asia is also the United States. It's the United States and India that have to uh, find their way together in this world where a lot of these countries are integrating with each other. And I think that's both an area of opportunity, but also a challenge. How do these two countries can they come together and create some uh, new way of moving forward? Is it the supply chain resilience uh, initiative that India started with Japan and Australia, which I, I think there's some talk of the United States coming on board with in the future? Is it the blue dot initiative that they have for infrastructure development? Uh, there's some ideas there, but again, uh, it's something that they have to figure out together. And, and that's gonna be both a challenge and an opportunity under uh, the next administration. Um, there is going to be uh, a big discussion, I think, on a liberalism within India. And for better or for worse, that's going to be, you know, part of the discussion. India has to come to terms with that. You can't, uh, uh, you know, you can't have a friendship on your own terms. Your friends are going to tell you when you, good friends do and should tell you when you're doing something wrong. And uh, that's part of the the agreement, uh, I think. And, and, and they should, I think, you know, see that as a signal of uh, what it would mean when other countries, if the United States, its close friend is worried about India's illiberal turn in Kashmir with CAA, with its plans for an NPR, National Population Register, or National uh, Registry of Citizens, you know, it should tell you what uh, countries that are on the fence about India are thinking as well. So I think India would be wise to heed that, but that's obviously going to be something that, that they come through. I think the issue of, you know, um, the BJP's gamble or Prime Minister Modi's gamble, whether that was intentional or unintentional to align itself with the Trump administration. I think that's something that will be remembered, but we will move past it. It's obviously on people's minds that, you know, Prime Minister Modi famously declared or infamously declared upkeep out Trump Sarkar when he was with President Trump at the uh, at the rally in Houston. Um, it's it's something that, you know, we, we can talk about it and we can say that it was just a referral to its 2016 campaign. Uh, I think the bottom line is it shouldn't have been said, whether that was said intentionally, unintentionally, whether it was in the speech, the speech writer who put that in there, if it was in there, should be blamed, because that is something that should be said. And, and, and while India has done a good job, I think, of clarifying and maneuvering uh, the bilateral relations, I think relationships are strong uh, in spite of that statement being said. Uh, but that shouldn't mean that that statement uh, was wise to say out loud. Uh, and so that's something that, you know, India will have to be very careful about. There shouldn't be, you don't want to go down the path of Israel, which is that you have uh, you know, one political party that you're really close to and the other one that, that you've completely alienated. That's, I don't think that's in India's interest. And, and that's something that if people were talking about or that was a strategy that was being considered, it's ill-advised. Um, but I think overall, you know, uh, it's going to be exciting to see where the United States and India take their relationship now that these foundational agreements are signed. I mean, you've signed all of them now, you've signed the industrial security annex, the logistics security agreement, the communications agreement, the geospatial agreement, um, how they operationalize this and, and work together. That's gonna be an, uh, an interesting thing. I think the main challenge now is gonna be China and how these two countries, um, both in, independent of China move forward on their Indo-Pacific initiative, but also deal with the China challenge. 
um, India is going to be under, I think, tremendous pressure to focus on its continental issues now because of the crisis with China, the talk that you know is within Indian strategists of the of the two front challenge um, uh, with with you know its uh, poor relations with China and Pakistan and and the close relationships that Pakistan and China have. But that means that India pays a lot less attention to its maritime issues. And if you listen to people who um, are very smart about U.S. strategy, you know, people like Ashley Tellis, people like, um, you know, the incoming administration uh, officials, you know, Michelle Flournoy, Jake Sullivan, Anthony Blinken, you know, who are going to expect it to have top roles in the in the Biden administration. They really see India's role as being one of a strong maritime presence of deepening its role in the Indo-Pacific, being, as they say, a net security provider for states in that region. And uh, I think you know this is something that I'll, I'll borrow from Ashley Tellis. India's two-front issue shouldn't be one that it talks about with China and Pakistan, but the two-front challenge that it faces continentally to its north, and then maritime um, when it comes to the south. That's going to be a very, very I think pivotal decision of how India maneuvers that, and that will spell significant consequences for how its relationship with the United States is going to go. And going back to I think the original of our the original topic of our conversation, the, the first question that you asked, economic growth, economic development of India is going to be a huge uh, factor in how India is able or unable to deal with that challenge. If it has the growth, if it has you know the if it takes the steps to reform and is able to grow. It can create the resources to deal with both. It can create the resources to have a strong navy, a significant presence uh, in the north. It can it can be a strong partner uh, and can provide that net security role if it wants to do that, and and if if the United States expects that role of India. If it doesn't, it's going to have to make some choices, and that choices will affect its partnerships uh, in the Indo-Pacific. If it doubles down on continental issues because that's where the crisis is and neglects the maritime. There's already talk of India abandoning its aircraft carrier goals and, and moving towards, you know, there was a comment by the uh, chief of defense staff where saying the aircraft carriers are too resource intensive and we should not move forward with the, uh, with the additional aircraft carrier. If those are the kinds of choices that India will make because of its lack of, because of its resource constraints, um, that has knock-on implications to its relationships with its key partners. And that's going to be something that, you know, uh, when you talk about expectations with India, are they too high, are they too low, that discussion will become especially acute uh, if that plays out in the Biden administration. So there's a lot of opportunity ahead. Uh, there's sort of an open playing field after these foundational agreements are signed. But, you know, there's there's some uh, dark clouds there, too. You, you have to manage the economic component. We'll see if a trade one, uh, phase one trade deal is signed, which has been pending since the last three or four years of the Trump administration, but also this major issue of how India strategically orients itself continentally or, or maritime. Uh, that's, I think, also going to be a, a, a big big factor in how U.S.-India relations proceed further. Yeah, I want to echo your point around the economy as well. I think it, it's in a weird way, as you were explaining that, I was also thinking about what is going on in the India-Pakistan context is going on in the China-India context, which is that you have a larger power that is racing ahead of you economically and if you don't make the reforms to catch up, then your strategic rivalry almost becomes a no-brainer in favor of the other side. And I think Pakistan is experiencing that with India, given that it has lagged for the better part of the 21st century. Um, and India has experienced that for the better part of the 21st century as well uh, against China. And I think the important on the it has an impact on US-India relations as well, because if you are going to have closer strategic ties with the United States as India, then there will be an expectation of also buying American defense weaponry and defense uh, equipment. And that is expensive kit. And, and I think if your economy is not doing that well, then it becomes very, very hard to justify the premium price that American defense goods command in the international market, right? So there is a, a, a sort of uh, an impact there on the relationship as well. If India is unable to procure the goods that the United States expects it to procure as part of that strategic relationship. And I think we, I, I forgot to mention one potential spoiler, which is going to come into acute focus on something and a piece that I'm writing right now, which is CATSA and India's acquisition of uh, Russian defense equipment, right? You uh, see a choice there, both in terms of cost, but in terms of utility, where India felt that the S-400 was more effective than the uh, Patriot missiles that the U.S. was offering. Um, but you know, you're going to see the impact of that, whether uh, a Biden administration, how it's going to maneuver sanctions, how the 
split Congress is going to be able to negotiate. There's some discussion that the uh, the waiver authority granted to uh, the president is not wide enough for India to come through. Um, maybe there has to be a congressional effort that needs to happen from India's perspective. Um, it's going to be interesting to see that. But you're absolutely right. India has significant needs. Uh, the renewed MMRCA tender for medium multi-aircraft, uh, medium multi-role aircraft, uh, that tender, which was supposed to be 126 aircraft, is now, uh, there's a new R request for information or a new RFI out. Uh, Boeing and, and Lockheed Martin with their uh, F-16, F-A-18s are key contenders in that. Uh, there's a uh, naval purchase, of uh, uh, Navy aircraft that Boeing is really key on there, and tons of other things. And again, you've seen that in crisis, India is spending the money. It's buying equipment. It's bought, you know, 30,000 cold weather equipment from uh, from the United States because of the crisis with China. It's gone to Russia and made sure that it's going to get steady supplies of its uh, of its weaponry. It's made emergency purchases during this time to to address. But again, the resource constraints become really hard. How how much longer can you have an air force that is significantly under uh, the squadron strength sanctioned as as you know what you need? How long are you going to go when seventy percent of your equipment, according to our latest uh, report, parliamentary report placed in the committee standing committee for defense, which says that seventy percent of India's uh, equipment is is in the obsolete category. Uh, resource constraints make those conversations a lot more difficult uh, when you want to look to upgrade it, the kinds of things that are available to you, the the, the kinds of vendors that you want to move forward, uh, the higher quality goods that you want to see for, for a standing force like India with its ambitions. Um, it, it really becomes such a uh, such a constraint when when you're not able to generate that economic growth and that translates to your inability to uh, go out and, 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 and get everything that you need to secure your interest. Uh, you have to make painful choices and those painful choices have further knock-on effects in your ability to strengthen your partnerships with uh, countries that expect a lot from you. The United States has expectations of India. These, uh, if India wants to be a net security provider for countries in the Indian Pacific or in the Indian Ocean region, those countries will have expectations of India. And when you don't match those expectations because you've not been able to prioritize development and growth in favor of Hindutva and majoritarianism, or uh, just you know, uh, launching programs that actually aren't implemented at the ground level, like Make It India or Digital India or Startup India, it, it, it has an impact on your foreign relations. And so um, India is at a very you know, critical deciding point. Um, and you know, where it decides to go, those in government, what decisions they make will, will affect its trajectory, I think, in the, in the 21st century, whether it becomes that um, you know, the global player that it wants to be or whether it, it, it sort of becomes a story of uh, unmet expectations. Avan, this has been a wonderful, fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for taking out the time. Um, I know it's Thanksgiving week, so doubly appreciate you taking out the time. Have a great no. rest of the holiday week. And again, thank you for joining us. No, thank you, Zair. And on a personal note, I, working with you back in 2016, uh, seeing you, you know, be a, a, a prolific commentator on issues of Pakistan has inspired me to begin my own writing journey soon after that, as I think you, we talked about it and, and as I picked your brain about it. Uh, so it's really great to, to, you know, join you on this incredible venture that you started with Pakistan and me. And uh, of course, always happy to, to be here, uh, to listen in, to join in and, and, and now to be a, a part of the conversation. So thank you for extending the invitation and uh, I look forward to keeping in touch with Pakistanami with you and uh, and and hope that uh, there's a there's a long, long tail to this show. Thank you. Thank you.